votes. All right, so um, welcome to a very special live episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. Now, if you don't know me, I am a writer, an artist, a historian, uh, and I run, obviously, a trans history podcast. I also wrote a film you might have seen that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this year called Framing Agnes. No big deal. Um, and <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I do lots of different things. Um, camping not among them you might imagine <laughs> but I'm delighted to be here and I have prepared a very special one from the vaults for you all in honor of Camp Trans now I do want to give a little content warning there's going to be some discussion of transphobia and turfs and some like mild but not graphic talk of like I don't even know how to describe it. Just like gross things people have said. But there's not going to be any like explicit graphic detailed descriptions of awful things. Let's be real. Um, but just giving you the heads up. Uh, and I won't be offended if you need to like get up and walk around or like huff and puff or whatever. Um, and also happy to chat after this portion. So if you have questions, let them percolate as we go. Now. In August 1991, Nancy Burkholder was excited to attend her second Michigan Women's Music Festival, the iconic annual lesbian gathering on a few acres specially purchased by organizers referred to as The Land. She had driven over a thousand miles across the country with her friend Laura, and as soon as they arrived, the two women got to work volunteering. They joined the shuttle service with their car, Nancy helped load and unload musicians' gear and women's camping equipment, the everyday labor that makes a massive volunteer-heavy festival run, as I'm sure you're all now aware since you've been here. Um, after 12 hours of work, Nancy was approached by two women. Here's how she tells what happens next. Quote, while I waited for Laura to return, I was approached by two women, Chris Coyote and Del Kelleher. Chris said that she needed to speak with me regarding a serious and difficult matter. Sensing her urgency, I suggested we move away from the women near the fire pit in order to talk privately. Chris said that the Michigan Women's Music Festival was a woman-only event and she wanted to know if I was a man. I replied that I was a woman and I showed her my New Hampshire picture ID driver's license. Then she asked me if I was a transsexual. I asked her what was the point of her questioning and she replied that transsexuals were not permitted to attend the festival. She said that the Michigan Women's Music Festival policy was that the festival was open to quote, natural woman-born women only. Dell added that the policy was for the benefit of transsexuals' safety and the safety of the women attending the festival. When I pointed out that there were other transsexuals on the land already, she acknowledged that this was true. Then she added, we haven't caught them yet, but we did catch you. 
Despite being legally female and what was then commonly known as a post-operative transsexual, Nancy was expelled from the land, not even allowed to return to her campsite to collect her own camping equipment. News of the situation traveled quickly along gossip networks, a game of broken telephone among the lesbian feminist attendees that quickly evolved into rumors that a man had been on the land or that a pre-op trans woman had flashed her genitals in the communal showers, traumatizing survivors, and even some believing that a trans man had been expelled, despite numerous transmasculine people and butches in regular attendance at the festival. Festival organizers had unknowingly started a fire that would blaze for a generation to come and ultimately prove to be their own undoing. The Michigan Women's Music Festival, better known as Mitch Fest or just Fest, was launched in 1976 by cis lesbian feminist Lisa Vogel, her sister Christy, and friend Mary Kendig. The 1970s had witnessed an explosion of women's liberation culture, including iconic music festivals all across the United States. The women's liberation movement had a soundtrack folksy women singer-songwriters produced by women sound engineers on women's record labels for a growing audience of feminist and lesbian feminist listeners. It was an invigorating time to be a feminist. Roe v. Wade had just been won in 1973, although we know what happened there, and it seemed like America was on the verge of a true feminist consciousness. This mass movement had its growing pains. Large feminist organizations, such as the National Organization for Women, were primarily led by middle-class white women who often overlooked or actively opposed centering the needs and leadership of women of color. The National Organization for Women also erupted into an internal war over the so-called Lavender Menace, the numerous lesbians who made up the rank and file of feminist organizations, but which threatened their attempts to appear respectable in the eyes of the public. As women's liberation headed into the 1970s, two further pressure points began to crack and divide this fragile coalition. With the win on Roe freshly under their belts, feminist thinkers looked to find the next major source of woman-hating to focus their efforts on. Pornography had just been partially legalized in the United States in 1969, and feminists like Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin set their sights on porn and sex work as the next battleground in their war against misogyny. The second pressure point occurred in the wake of the 1969 Stonewall Rebellion not riots it's a rebellion the veterans do not like it when you call it riots Ugh. anyway that's a story for another day but as a new generation became politicized forming groups like gay activist alliance and gay liberation front lesbians found themselves having to fight for space within their own movement as gay men and their needs dominated spaces under this same pressure, and with their own forming feminist consciousness, many lesbian feminists took aim at drag as an example of gay male woman-hating. You have probably heard the iconic speech by Sylvia Rivera at the 1973 Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, Y'all Better Quiet Down Now, unearthed and posted online by the artist Tourmaline, and then ripped off by David France for that awful movie he made. 
Um, what you don't see in the clip is the reason Sylvia fought her way to the stage. Minutes before, lesbian feminists led by Jean O'Leary, who, by the way, has subsequently apologized and is a good person, um, read out a statement against drag and against the trans women like Sylvia who had attempted to join early gay liberation movements. That same summer, on the opposite side of the continent, feminist folk musician Beth Elliott stepped onto the stage at the West Coast Lesbian Conference. The 23-year-old was due to perform her usual selection of woman-centered protest songs. <laughs> Instead, a group calling themselves the, quote, gutter dykes rushed the stage intent on beating up Beth and expelling her from the feminist convention all for the crime of being a transsexual woman. Two cis lesbian feminist comedians jumped between Beth Elliott and the gutter dykes and a, a brawl broke out. After they were separated, the hundred or so attendees were asked to vote on whether Beth could stay at the conference or be forced to leave. They did not vote in her favor. This was not an isolated incident as sound engineer Sandy Stone would soon find out. The main women's record label, Olivia Records, who, by the way, are now Olivia Cruises, the lesbian cruise ship line. You may have heard about them on the L word. <laughs> um, had persuaded Sandy to join them as their engineer. She'd previously worked with the likes of Jimi Hendrix, and women's sound engineers and producers were almost non-existent in the male-dominated field of the mid-70s. The Olivia Collective knew Sandy was a transsexual, and they didn't mind. They needed a sound engineer bad, and they would do anything to not have to work with the sleazy cis men who were the only other option. But when Sandy was outed, a national lesbian crisis erupted on the pages of feminist and lesbian publications across the country. While Olivia Records stood firmly by Sandy and released statements to that effect as well, much to their credit, she eventually made the decision to leave of her own volition for fear that the controversy would destroy the scrappy but important record label. The fight over Sandy Stone would go on to inspire Janice Raymond's turf hate screed, The Transsexual Empire, The Making of the She-Male, which you may have heard of, um, which remains the cornerstone text in the anti-trans movement to this day. In it, Raymond calls for transsexuals to be, quote, morally mandated out of existence. In other words, genocided. All of these factors lay the groundwork for what was to come in Michigan. Though the transsexual problem couldn't have been further from the mind of organizer Lisa Vogel when, at 19 years old, she bought the land and launched what was to become the largest and most enduring women's music festival of all time. Mitchfest quickly gained a reputation, not just for music, but for the sense of community it created. Festies became friends and lovers outside of the annual meetup. It is from Mitchfest that many of the first generation of women's shelters and domestic violence support services in North America were born. My dear friend Sarah Schulman told me that it's at Mitchfest that she learned to read tarot cards, a practice she has continued for many subsequent decades. Festies weren't afraid of controversy, duking it out over major issues of contention throughout the 1980s, including the inclusion of butches and femmes, and perhaps its most major challenge, whether or not BDSM could ever truly be a lesbian or feminist practice. 
Dworkin and other radical feminists had expanded their fight against pornography to include BDSM as a practice of woman-hating in sexuality, arguing that it was actually impossible to consent to bodily harm within a misogynist culture. Areas of the land were eventually designated for leather dykes, as well as for orgies, art classes, consciousness raising circles, and feminist witchcraft. All the good things. After Nancy was expelled from the land in 1991, in the middle of the night, she flew home heartbroken. But things didn't stop there. As word spread in both trans and feminist circles, something truly incredible happened. For the first time, lesbian feminists were outraged on Nancy's behalf. The following year, led by Nancy's cis friend Janice Walworth, a group of women distributed pamphlets about the incident and set up a table to talk about trans issues at Mitchfest. This was feminism in action, identifying a problem and then raising consciousness about it through peer education. Their table, however, was vandalized and had to be protected by bodyguards from the Lesbian Avengers, a national group formed in the early 1990s who started the first Dyke March and who, as it should be noted, were trans inclusion from the start, according to co-founder and my dear friend Sarah Shulman. Um, Janice later explained, quote, it was in 1991 when Nancy was thrown out. We were just all in shock about it, and we were just trying to let as many people as possible know about what happened. After the festival, we, get, we began a letter-writing campaign, writing gay newspapers and stuff like that, just to make sure that people knew. Two years later, in 1993, Nancy returned to the land, and this time, she brought back up. While cis feminists have been raising consciousness within the festival itself, Nancy and other trans people had been raising their own consciousness outside of it. These women prepared a workshop on trans women's inclusion that they intended to deliver on the land. They bought their tickets, turned up, and marched onto the land together in solidarity. Organizers quickly expelled them, but undeterred, the trans women headed to a clearing across the road and delivered their workshop there to some interested and sympathetic lesbian feminists who crossed the road to learn more. Enter Transsexual Menace. The early 90s saw an explosion of transcultural production, coinciding with an interest from the mainstream, quite analogous to the so-called transgender tipping point of 2014. You may have been alive then, I don't know. Um, leading the way were three non-binary trans people. Uh, writer and communist Leslie Feinberg, banker-turned-activist Ricky Ann Wilchins, and performance artist Kate Bornstein. You may have heard of these people, I'm assuming. Um, these three were not only leading activist movements, but had each published books that established a new type of politics, transgender politics. Transgender aimed to include not just medicalized transsexuals, but argued for a far broader coalition of gender dissidents, coining the terms genderqueer and later non-binary. Radicalized by both the events of Mitchfest and the recent murder of a trans man in Nebraska, whom they dubbed Brandon Tina, check out my book, Boys Don't Cry, on how that's not actually his name, um, Feinberg, Wilchins, Bornstein, and other activists helped form a national network of trans activists called Transsexual Menace. 
Chapters popped up in cities across the United States, Canada, and the UK, appearing at protests in their uniform of iconic black transsexual menace t-shirts. In 1994, members of Transsexual Menace drove to Michigan to take part in a protest in the clearing across the road from the land, Camp Trans, the original Camp Trans. Transsexuals and cis lesbians set up their protest camp to draw attention to the exclusionary woman-born woman policy Mitchfest had subsequently publicly adopted. In the center of their tents, they hung up a sign, Trans Central Station. A tradition was born of marching into the land before inevitably being forced to leave. Cis allies smuggled pamphlets and other protest materials onto the land to continue raising consciousness among attendees. Festival attendees were encouraged to cross the road and meet with Camp Trans attendees to learn more. A few years later, in 1999, Camp Trans was established as an annual event when Ricky Ann Wilchins and Transsexual Menace returned again to host Son of Camp Trans, um, along with members of the Boston and Chicago chapters of the Lesbian Avengers. If women's liberation had had its pressure points, so too did the burgeoning transgender coalition. Tensions came to the fore when a small group of trans activists were invited onto the land to negotiate with festival organizers. They were able to establish an understanding that post-operative transsexual women could attend the festival, but when they returned to Camp Trans to announce this success, they were not met with applause. The new transgender politics argued that trans people were the gender we identified with because we said we were, not because of going through a medicalized process which was prohibitively expensive, difficult to impossible to obtain for some, and not something every trans person actually wanted to go through. Right? Now, along similar lines, the explicit conditional permission for post-op trans women to attend did nothing to address the needs of trans men and people who did not yet call themselves non-binary but would begin to within a handful of years. While transmasculine people had always attended festival and had never been expelled from the land, many seemed to feel that for the transgender coalition to survive, it needed to be all of us or none of us. Some of the trans women also questioned why trans men should be fighting for their own inclusion within an explicitly women-only event when they specifically did not identify as women. But that's a whole other issue. <laughs> now, this conflict turned vicious and continued in the pages of trans magazines, online forums, and in IRL trans communities for years to come. While Camp Trans continued each year following 1999, Few trans women attended, and it became dominated by trans men and non-binary transmasculine people. As a result, many festival attendees did not see it as a protest, and instead just saw it as an additional offshoot of the main festival, where most of their friends were also attending. Meanwhile, trans women continued to be excluded from the festival, and accusations abounded that the trans men now running Camp Trans had managed to exclude trans women from their own movement. A new leadership team took over in 2003, bringing focus back on the women-born women policy. It's around this time that I was transitioning myself just a few hours north in Canada. Camp Trans was by then already an institution, and each year I had to fend off the urgings of my friends to attend. As you might imagine, a tent in the woods is not the sort of camping I'm willing to do. <laughs> 
But certainly many trans women attended, including notable writers like Imogen Binney, Emi Koyama, and Bryn Kelly. A new trans feminism was forming, which would crystallize when Julia Serrano published Whipping Girl in 2007, giving us a conceptual framework that allowed the girls and everybody else to understand how, for example, a protest camp started to fight the exclusion of trans women from an event could itself end up excluding trans women. Trans misogyny. New strategies emerged. Trans activists began contacting musicians booked to play at the festival and asking for a boycott, which only a handful agreed to. Musicians like Bikini Kill knowingly violated the boycott for years, which is why trans women of a certain age agree on one thing. Fuck Kathleen Hanna. Protests were held of shows by bands like the Butchies, who had released a fence-sitting statement in which they claimed that they, quote, don't think that our support of the trans communities and women-born women communities are in direct contradiction to each other. Festival attendees who supported trans inclusion started wearing yellow armbands to signify their stance within the festival. In 2006, out trans woman Lorraine Donaldson bought a ticket to Mitchfest and attended. Inside, she formed a group called the Yellow Armbands, and word spread quickly that the women-born women policy had been rescinded. But this was quickly shut down by festival founder Lisa Vogel. A press release read, quote, I would love for you and the other organizers of Camp Trans to find the place in your hearts and politics to support and honor space for women who have had the experience of being born and living their life as women. I ask that you respect that woman, born woman, is a valid and honorable gender identity. I also ask that you respect that women, born women, deeply need our space, as do all communities who create space together. I wish you well. I want healing, and I believe this is possible between our communities, but not at the expense of deeply needed space for women, born women. If a trans woman, one word, purchased a ticket, it represents nothing more than woman choosing to disrespect the stated intention of this festival. As feminists, we call upon the trans women's, again one word, community to help us maintain women-only space, including spaces created by and for women-born women. The festival took on a new phase. While the women born women policy remained, it was to no longer be strictly enforced. Organizers wanted trans women to voluntarily exclude ourselves. Pressures within Camp Trans burst again in 2010. A confrontation with a tow truck driver outside the festival gates resulted in claims that the driver had threatened to kill two Camp Trans attendees, which was not addressed by Mitchfest security or staff. This bashing incident set everyone's anxiety high, creating a pressurized environment that would soon spiral out of control. When Camp Trans attendees could not come to a consensus about how to respond to the threats made by the tow truck driver, the camp split along gender and ideological lines. Some attendees advocated for a non-pacifist response. A trans women's caucus was held and decided to split off from the camp and reform inside Mitchfest itself, feeling that it would be more productive to work for inclusion from the inside and perhaps feeling less safe outside festival grounds. 
but this was opposed by other trans women who felt outraged that they would be willing to join Mitchfest right after seeing festival security tacitly endorse death threats. The far left trans women felt that these assimilationists were selling out the movement. A statement later released by these dissenters uh, in several anarchist magazines ended, quote, we're mean bitches, we have our own voices, and from now on we will only be speaking our own power or nothing at all. Get with us or get the fuck out of the way. A wave of vandalism occurred on the land in the days that followed, with supposedly trans with supposedly trans-positive but sexually graphic slogans and pamphlets appearing within the festival, some of which contained language demeaning cis women as inferior. Some camp trans attendees blamed these problems on the anarchists associated with the group Bash Back, while others claimed that they were done by TERFs attempting to stir anti-trans animosity among festees. Either way, these episodes burnt some of the tenuous bridges that Camp had built with Mitchfest, as well as with each other. Though a 2011 Camp was held, this series of events ultimately spelled the end for Camp Trans, as many trans people felt that it was becoming unproductive. But it wasn't the end of efforts to organize against trans women's exclusion. Another new campaign, led by trans women and cis women, started within the land itself. Trans women belong here. With their iconic t-shirts and tote bags, trans women belong here, set up an annual table to educate festival attendees on the reasons why trans women should be welcomed as sisters into the legendary women's event. They released a coherent set of demands with the aim of, quote, welcoming all women to the Michigan Women's Music Festival. It included thoughtful policy suggestions that could have countered any perceived issues with trans women's inclusion, such as creating more privacy options within the communal showers so that no woman would be, quote, pressured into putting her body on display. By this point, the calls for musicians and attendees to boycott Mitch Fest were finally making headway, and fears abounded that the festival would simply collapse if younger musicians and attendees were no longer willing to support a segregated event. Now, you may be asking yourself, why does a lesbian music festival in the middle of the woods in Michigan matter so much? Why was this battle so important? I, for one, often said things back then like, quote, you couldn't pay me to sit in the woods with a bunch of people who hate me. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to fully grasp how important the Michigan Women's Music Festival was if you weren't actually part of the scene in North America at that time. It was the event around which much of American and Canadian lesbian communities and queer communities broadly turned. Hundreds of women attended each year, many of whom spent the rest of the year running the majority of women's organizations, parties, and community spaces all across the continent. A lot of trans women were deeply embedded within these communities and watching each year as their closest friends and supporters chose to attend an event that explicitly excluded them was a painful reminder of their status as second-class citizens. The conflict this created within women's, lesbians, and queer social spaces throughout the year reached a point of true absurdity. One example, and I'm not going to name names, but I do know who it is. One example I remember from Brooklyn is telling a well-known trans woman hairdresser was asked to donate her services to the fundraiser of a cis femme who wanted to use the funds to buy herself a ticket to Mitchfest. Can you imagine the audacity? 
Ultimately, these intra-community conflicts led to the demise of Mitchfest. While camp trans organizers never advocated for the end of Mitchfest, instead pleading again and again just for a more inclusive policy that would allow all women and non-binary people to attend the event, lead organizer Lisa Vogel made the unilateral decision to close the festival in 2014. By then, the writing was on the wall. The transgender tipping point, so-called, had been named by Time magazine, and trans organizations across the Western world were making unprecedented, though sadly short-lived as we now know, gains. Perhaps she predicted that it was only a matter of time before she got sued and was forced by law to desegregate the event. Approaching her 60s, she didn't want to fight what was obviously a losing battle. Many trans people wondered if, by ending the public festival, festival organizers were intending to end criticism and just start hosting invite-only private events on the land that were less vulnerable to public protest. Over time, it does not appear that that was the case, however. A farewell festival was held in 2015, and all festival property was sold off. A group of festival diehards formed the We Want the Land Coalition and after many years managed to buy the land. A new festival, Fernfest, is set to debut on the same patch of land in Michigan this August 2022. Fernfest is shaping up to look pretty much identical to the Michigan Women's Music Festival but with one key difference. It is explicitly trans-inclusive. Camp Trans didn't win an inclusive Mitch Fest, but it was ultimately successful in shifting the terms of the conversation. Cis Dykes worked in solidarity with trans women, trans men, and non-binary people, creating a strong sense of community that formed an inoculation against turfism in the US and Canada, which is largely why they are dealing with a very different situation here than we are in the UK, right? Now, when I was asked to give a talk on trans history here at the UK's Camp Trans, you won't be shocked to learn that this was the only story that came to my mind. Camp Trans was the catalyst for massive transformations in understanding of trans life and politics and um, organizing on the ground that eventually culminated in many of the social, legal and liberatory wins we saw in the 2010s. I wonder then what your camp trans will inspire. As a certified old, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to see what you come up with. I can only hope that the friendships, relationships, jealousies, and conflicts that arise here will stimulate the shift we need to fight back against the anti-gender movement in the UK and around the world. People make change. Revolution does not happen in a moment, and it doesn't happen alone. Revolution is made through building lives together, struggling together, struggling with each other sometimes, and yes, camping together. Thank you very much.